Man, I just wanted to do a podcast about something we all could relate to and that I could speak to specifically. And that's about being broke. Welcome to The Broke Stops Here. I'm your host, Dame Grant. Man, basketball season always reminds me of the phrase, you gotta do what you gotta do. And I had to do what I had to do. The year was 2011, my brokest year on record. I was living in a slum house at the time, and I'm not being sarcastic or facetious when I say a slum house. I mean an actual house where more people lived there than there were places to sleep. It was rough. We had a barely working fridge, heating and AC was shoddy, showering was a real hit or miss. Either it was overcrowded or just not working at all. And of course, there was no TV. Side note, I had a storage unit also, and I know what you're thinking. No, I could not find a non-slum house that would equal the sum of the two. But looking back, that shit was crazy. My day job at the time was that of a personal trainer. Now I just started this personal trainer job, so clients and money were scarce. But it was a 24-hour gym, so I could use it to shower and watch TV on the treadmill. Aha! So I followed my usual routine as I had been for a few weeks, arriving at the gym in regular street clothes, polo and jeans. I couldn't wear my workout clothes because they were my, yes, you guessed it, my work clothes. <laughs> and I needed them for the next day. And I had no money or time to wash them each night that I watched TV. It was all very intricate. And this was a late night weekday game. So I got there around 9 p.m. to start watching. I hopped on the treadmill and I had about a mile and a half in when in walks one of my best friend's wives. Immediately, I played it cool. She strolled over to the treadmill and said, hey, what's up? You working out in street clothes? And with the quickness, I said some garbage like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting on another trainer. Uh, we're going to write some workouts, then go booze it up. Lies. We both knew I was broke. I had no money to drink. She said, oh, okay. Well, who's winning the game? And I said to her, again, with the quickness, oh, this? I'm not even watching it, really. I think the blue team, again, lies. But there were truths. One, I was watching. And two, I was broke. And I'm lucky it all went down like that because eventually she and my friend put two and two together and realized I was watch TV on the treadmill broke and offered me to stay at their place for free until I could, like our old friend Claude Tyler would say, get back on my feet. And in all seriousness, I don't know how much longer I would have lasted at that slum house or else I would have went. Christmas came early that year. Now, a few months back, I was contacted by an organization known as CSH, or the Corporation for Supportive Housing. So, this episode will feel a little different. I volunteer with their partner program known as Speak Up, where volunteers like myself are partnered with individuals that have experienced homelessness. My role as a volunteer is to help prepare those individuals to tell their stories to the public, whether it be at a fundraiser or a speaking engagement or to a legislator so that they can become advocates for those that are currently living in homelessness. Now, my volunteer partner is also my guest for today's episode and has graciously agreed to tell his story. He will remain anonymous, but he is a 61-year-old Chicago resident I've been fortunate enough to work with and to listen to. Now, I hope you take a listen too. trying to figure out a whole bunch of things. And so I just walked the downtown area because I didn't want to be still too long because something I had learned in the neighborhood is if you don't position yourself or make it seem to people like you have someplace to go that you that you are determined to go someplace, 
you may become victim either to the police, like, hey, what are you doing? Why are you just loitering? Or two, you, you become a victim of the street element. Um, you look like you don't know where you're going. Let us help you out. <laughs> Matter of fact, mm. what's in your pocket? You know, or that, or maybe it can be worse. One place I would go to, uh, because when you get, when you stay outside, I don't know, if, um, of course, some people don't know, you get what I call weathered. Your skin has to deal with that sun and the, the humidity, and your skin becomes puffed up, like, and then you, your face even gets to be puffy. And so every now and then, I didn't even think of it at that time until later on, but I would go to trying to find shelter someplace inside where I could go. And there was one place, it was a residential building, and I would go in and sit, but I was trying to be very you know, considerate of people and not be a bother to the security guard. And he never said anything to me. So every now and then, over time, I would go and sit at 10, 11 o'clock at night and probably stay there for about an hour. And at some point, I nodded off. I think I had a good understanding of what was going on because I, I always left, and I didn't want him to say anything to me. Anything like, um, excuse me, sir, we can't let you just sit here uh, for an hour or two. Uh, and he never said anything, and I respected that, and I appreciated him. If I ever see him to this day, I'll give him, shake his hand and give him a cup of coffee or whatever that I can mm-hmm. do to show my appreciation. But then I would leave. I would leave before when I kind of felt like something is telling me it's time to go. I didn't try to stay in any spot too long, even when I went to sleep in Grant Park. But I would not stay for maybe an hour. But I would always be conscious of keep moving. Don't stay in one spot. Keep moving. Keep moving. Now, I look back on it, it's good for your health. When you're out there like that, keep moving. Keep the blood circulating. Then you don't want to be an eyesore for anybody. The, one of the worst scenarios that could come from this sort of thing is going to jail, being even just confronted by the Chicago Police Department. Some people may have a previous experience, and they may put, position me in that picture and that memory and look at me as the bad guy and call police and felt, because they may have felt uh, uncomfortable with me. Or you first became homeless when? When I was 35. I worked at the stock market from 82, 82 to 93. I was there for 11 years. But in my 11th year, in 93, that's when it happened. And even though I had a full-time job and I still had income working at an um, options exchange on the trading floor, I uh, found myself uh, with a, just a dark sky, dark hopes at that time. Of because my brightness of having some place to go lay my head, if I could, trying to be poetic, I guess, is uh, <laughs> it, that, that it was gone. And I was to uh, have to walk the streets, yet keep my job for a while and not have a place to uh, call home where I could go lay my head. Take me back to the day where you were actually on the street. I was living with uh, relatives, uh, and as I have been f- from the age of 11 until this point, the um, head of the household, my uncle, passed away. His wife had become uh, ill and bedridden, and the daughter decided that the house was to be sold and she couldn't sell it if I was there. And so I had to leave. Actually, uh, to help me get the point, police were called. I tried to explain to them I was giving my uncle something for, as far as rent, it was not documented, and so they said, well, they had to go with what the daughter had wanted, and she wanted me to be gone. And so I left. As a matter of fact, I walked from the house to the nearest CTA, and on the way there, I happened to notice the police passed me by as if they were noticing where I was going. I got on the train, and because my pattern had always going to be by my job, I went down by my job. And... I don't know, with some hopes, maybe I would hear, see, smell, taste, touch, something that would trigger a thought on what I was going to do. 
And so I continued that journey of, of thought for a couple of weeks, if not a month. Grant Park was at that time had benches on it that were on Michigan Avenue and they were my bed a few nights, at least a couple. And I would see people in the morning getting off the bus, going to work. And I don't know if some of these people had recognized me because I had been at the uh, exchange for years. Well, I was always conscious of one of my coworkers seeing me. Whether they did or not, they didn't say. So from that day when I had to leave the house, I was walking trying to figure out what was going, what was I going to do? What was I going to go? And I had no idea. Was I embarrassed? I, just, I didn't have a script. I didn't know what to say to people if they were relatives or friends from high school, college, whatever, grammar school, other jobs, this job. What would I say to them? I, I don't know. So I'm scrambling for that thing too. Money, what would I say? Place to stay and how am I going to revive myself to get back to my job for the next day? In the hour we spent discussing and recording this, it was obvious he was still struggling with the impact of being homeless for those few weeks on the streets of Chicago. Even 25 years later, the oblivious, naive side of me assumed he did not save any money. But to my surprise, I was dead wrong. He had saved quite a bit, actually. Definitely enough to get an apartment and even enough for a down payment to buy a home. A really interesting part that we discussed earlier was that you had a substantial amount of money saved up. Yeah. So $32,000 roughly. But in 1994, right. $32,000 oh, yeah. was, was no, you know. It was worth more than what it is now. Mm -hmm. Right. For sure. But I couldn't help asking myself, why didn't he do those things? Um, I didn't want to touch it because at first, because I put it away for a reason, you know, for my retirement, which was definitely not at that time. And I was 35. But I did want to buy a home or a condo so at some point i did go to the bank and ask them i told them i would have ten to twelve thousand dollars to put down on a seventy-eight thousand dollar condo in dearborn park and my credit wasn't wasn't bad and so the lady says well can you go talk to some of the traders at the options exchange for more and i didn't understand why she was asking and it really uh, and the, the, my broker didn't understand why she had asked either so I just didn't get the condo because I didn't. I felt like I'm already been through some stuff, and then now somebody's trying to take advantage of me. Even in what we call the legit world, and only because they, I guess they saw a victim or, or they thought they saw a victim. You know, take yeah, advantage of the situation. Take advantage. Um, so I didn't go through with it. Despite all he had done, and from all appearances, doing it the right way, he still lacked the guidance and resources to acquire housing whether it be something as routine as getting an apartment or something as attainable as purchasing a home, which was definitely within his grasp. When you factor in the lack of resources and guidance, in addition to what he described at the bank, which could be considered as discriminatory lending practices or redlining, which black and Latino minorities faced at vastly higher rates in the 90s in Chicago and across the country, he ultimately gave up setting aside his savings for retirement, which is typical of a white collar employee or a company man, as he described himself. So without the proper housing, he quickly began to realize that the mental, physical, and ultimately hygienic demands of the job were almost impossible to meet. After that first night in Grant Park, I asked him how he felt walking into work that next day. I just felt bad personally. 
you know, not, not shaving, no toothpaste, no deodorant. That was pretty embarrassing is that the word is very challenging, a heavy weight to, to bear, a big thump in my heart. My um, environment, my upbringing, my, my schooling, my teaching, my nurturing, my mentors have never allowed me to do such a thing. Go to work with the same clothes on that you had slept in or walked around with it all day in the, in the, in the summer or well, in August. You get dirt on you from the pollution and then you sit on benches and stuff and lean on walls. You have a, a look and a smell, I'm sure. And I hadn't really got a smell the name. I don't know, but if it was, it was, I think it was subtle. I can't go into my workplace surrounded on the trading floor with... Uh, hundreds of people, if you are offensive to them, you will not be in that pit because they can't concentrate on making money. And they, some of them at one point made $2,500 a day. They can't afford to have something distract them. And I've seen people be ostracized. One of their peers, they used to spray deodorant behind him when he wasn't looking. I was an employee. My position was to stand up and help with the trading on the, on the floor. And at some point when I went into work, because I didn't take care of myself properly, you know, like I want to, my whole body would get a jolt of electricity. I don't know how to explain it because I was about to nod and the body and my, my body would just jolt a strong, heavy charge that would be quick that would pop me back into at least position. Uh, and I, I may be still drowsy, but it popped me back in position. Your body went into a survival mode of its own to keep you awake while at work. Those jolts would happen you know, like maybe three, four times in a day. I haven't forgotten it. How long did your job last in these conditions? August, my cousin asked me to leave the house. Not until December did I go to a place called the Chicago Christian Industrial League. In those three months, what happened was I was out there for like a month just, just walking around. Still employed, kept my job. And then somebody told me about this place called Pacific Garden Mission, where you could go in, you have to... Go in about 6 o'clock at night. You have to be in line to get in. You spend the night, but at 6 o'clock in the morning, you, you, you've been put out. And you have to go find something to do. Then at some point, even though I was still working now, I think I was on like medical leave because they noticed something in my behavior at some point. So I was still getting a check. But uh, the check, I could take it to a, and go to a hotel room. And I stayed in the hotel room for seven days and kept, kept the curtains closed. I was trying to get back to normal physically physically more so than mentally, but still mentally too, and then figure out things. And then the next seven days, because it was like every other week I, I got paid, I would go back to Pacific Art Mission. But then when I got that check again, I went back to the hotel. That was my routine. At this point, your medical leave lasted you about a month, yeah. and then had your job ended at that point? How my job ended was Human Resources called me into the office, asked me about my performance on the job. Out of the 11 years I was there, I had nine years perfect attendance. And everybody knew that I was the company man. They thought I was a company mm -hmm. man. So when the company even said to me, oh, we're concerned about your, your behavior, this and that, I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll take the entry aptitude test because I'm looking to go to another department at this point. If I don't do well, then I'm out of here. If I do well, then I'll just go to that other department or just we'll maintain. The day came for me to take the test. It had like 40 questions on it. You can only miss two questions to pass the test. So I sat down and I had a migraine headache that day. I could not see uh, in my peripheral vision at all. I could only see color right straight in front of my pupils. Anything else in peripheral vision was all white, like a just bright white. And so this kind of eye strain had happened to me two other times in life, one in high school in my English class with Mr. McGrath. 
and then once in college when I was working on a project. So I answered two questions, and I put my pencil down and said, that's it, I know I'm out of here now. So then within a matter of days, they called me in, and they were saying goodbye to me. And so then she asked me about going on Social Security disability, and I said, I don't want to be on Social Security disability. And I, I challenged her. I'm a working man. Mm -hmm. So then she kept pushing. She was very, very, very professional and nice. So I said to her, I said, well, would you take it? Without hesitation, I said, yes. So I said, okay, I'll take it. But I was definitely not looking to take nobody's hand out. Mm -hmm. That wasn't my style. And at this time, I was still at Pacific Art Mission. And when I did go to, to apply for unemployment, because I don't know about unemployment. It's not, a, it's not the kind of guy I am. But when I found out about unemployment, I went to him. And they said, well, you just missed it by a week. Your quarters have left, have run out. In other, in other words, if you had applied last, the week before, you would have got all of this, you know, the 13 weeks, whatever it is, six months, whatever it was, of, of um, unemployment money. But because you waited one week past the date, you know, you're out of luck. Well, I've been living a life now that I wasn't looking to get, you know, get it in the first place. Then I've been living a life that's been kind of rough. So these past 25 plus years, what's, wow. it, what's it been like? Unbelievable. Actually, to be real honest, I don't think I have woken up from this chapter. It's been a uh, chapter in life that's unpredicted, unexpected. And at some point, I have to do say, it shows that when you have to get something done, you have skills and abilities that you didn't know you had. And you, they come into play. So you always so just do the best you can. And some things are the same. You know, treat people right, whether you're homeless or not. Do the best that you can, whether you're homeless or not. And take care of yourself, whether you're homeless or not. So I, I do try to look after my health. Um, and I, I applaud places like the Chicago Christian Industrial League because I've seen so many people come through those doors. You got three hots in the cot and you got some social service assistance. So what is your, what's your current living situation now? I was there from 93 to 2006. Uh, but in those years I was there, I saw Chicago Christian Industrial League help a lot of people. It was bought by another company, and that company now is called A Safe Haven. Uh, and so I'm still with an organization that helps those who are having uh, issues in the homeless area. In 2006, they built this building where I live at now, and it's a independent living. It's, some people call it a studio. Some people call it SRO, but you have your own private bath. You have your own kitchen. So I've had a place to lay my head since 93. i got to say it. It's not home but it's, it's a far cry, far, far cry from the, from the bench on Michigan Avenue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Long way from that. Bugs and stuff be crawling around, you know. You don't have to, they don't crawl here. It's a far cry from where I was at so many years ago. I'm glad to hear that. And what type of work are you doing now? Uh, some television production. I just did a, a black tie uh, event with uh, Safer Foundation at the Museum of Science Industry. I video recorded. Then I it comes on cable television in Chicago, and um, I did I do a church service every Sunday morning. I do uh, Congressman Davis just had a uh, high school art competition. I recorded that. The Education Awards is once a year with Congressman Davis, and so I've done those two events every year for since '96. And then the Westside Ministers Coalition I recorded and put theirs on on cable too. So those that's the kind of things things that I'm doing now. When we think about what contributed to you ultimately becoming homeless those first couple of months and not being able to find your own apartment. It sounds like resources were limited to you. You know, if you live by the ocean, you don't, you don't necessarily have the understanding of what it takes to live in a desert. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be philosophical <laughs> or something. 
But I didn't know to look for resources of this sort because I was doing so good. I mean, Northwestern school, you know, went away to college, you know, and I'm not being braggadocious. I'm just saying I did not see this in nowhere in the picture that I had that I was a part of. But and then once it does happen, yes, I had no resources. I mean, if I had resources, I would have not did probably not even a night in Grand Park. And then once it did, I'm too busy trying to figure out what to do on my own uh, that I didn't go to somebody else. And I don't know where, where would I have went to. Alderman's office? I mean, that would, you know, not blaming an alderman. I'm just, it's just not a common thought to go to your alderman's office to get uh, help with you because you just became homeless. I didn't picture me being one of those kind of people who were homeless. And some of them were PhDs. I just didn't, that, I mean, I got too many family members. I got too much, I thought, street knowledge. But see, them street knowledge, that street knowledge I had really didn't, I'm out to hill of beans with the stuff I was dealing with. So the resource I went to was the other homeless people. When you look at homelessness in the bigger picture, have you ever thought about how to fix it? These HUD meetings, HUD has a bunch of meetings for housing, for homelessness, but they never include homeless people in the in discussions on what to do with these millions and millions and millions of dollars that they keep transferring to the next year because they can't find out what to do with it. And, and But they never include homeless people in those talks. So to have all these talks about and don't have anybody in the conversation, who the conversation is focused around, you just hot air. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not really coming to conclusion. So that's, I think that's how you solve it, is you include the homeless people in the discussion about ending homelessness. Nobody wants to be homeless. I mean, anybody can be homeless tomorrow. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time, my friend. I appreciate it. Looking forward to working together in the future on helping to solve this crisis. Well, thank you. Anything I can do to help. Folks, once again, I want to thank you for listening to The Broke Stops here and to my guest for sharing his story. I hope this episode has provided you some insight to the people that you see on the street and that you reflect on what their journey has been or will be before thinking otherwise. There's a variety of ways to assist with homelessness. However, if you'd like to make a donation to CSH, please go to the website at www.csh.org and go to the Support CSH link under the About Us tab. If you enjoyed the Broke Stops here, please continue to listen, subscribe, and leave a review. You can find us on almost any platform that you listen to a podcast. And if you'd like to donate, you can find us on Patreon.com, which is in the detailed description of the show. As always, being broke builds character, so stay broke, but not forever. And finally, I'd like to take a second to dedicate this episode to our friend Sean from CSH, a young man that has left us much too soon. Please remember to check on your people and be kind.